0: Welcome to Profiles. I'm Gina Asher. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Maria Inajosa, a broadcast journalist whom you'll recognize from NPR's Latino USA and PBS's Need to Know and the Emmy-winning Maria Inahosa One-on-One. She's reported on immigrant work camps in New Orleans after Katrina, the plight of wounded veterans, and child brides, and she was correspondent for Lost in Detention, Frontline's Examination of Immigration Policy in America. Her work has won her four Emmys and a slew of other prestigious journalism awards, many of which have praised her reporting on society's disadvantaged and the invisible. Welcome, Maria Inajosa. It's great to be here. My list of stories you've done and achievements you've racked up doesn't even begin to reflect all the accolades that have come your way or the breadth of the stories you've reported. As a young college graduate, did you set out to report on these types of issues or did this result for some really great assignments for a journalist starting out? How did you get into this? No, in fact
1: part of what I'll be talking about in my speech here on campus is that even though I was an avid consumer of the news, um, Growing up on the south side of Chicago in High Park, uh, you know, Mexican immigrant family. My father was a, a medical doctor devoted to research at the University of Chicago. Um, so we were exposed to a lot. We consumed a lot of news. Um, journalism in the United States actually was really important because we would go back to Mexico and we would see the difference between living in a democracy and in a, an authoritarian regime with a facade of democracy. Yeah, newspaper television. It was really important to me. But I never saw my story, the experience that I was having that I knew was 100% American. Um, I mean, my father immediately became an American citizen. We all had green cards um, for many, many years until I became a citizen. But I didn't see the the experience that I was having reflected anywhere, much less was there um, anyone who looked like me or had a name like me or sounded like me doing anything in any media. So it was not something that I thought was actually attainable. You know, that notion of there are no role models so you don't see yourself. Well, that, you know. I went to college in New York actually to be a a dancer and an actress. (laughs) I know most people don't know that. And it was there that I got involved with the local college radio station up at Columbia University. Um, which is a pretty famed college radio station. It's where Robert Siegel started and several other radio personalities, WKCR. And there I started doing live radio. And it was in that process of doing that radio show that um, actually was bilingual for a while and then went to All-Spanish for a while that I realized that I had something to say, that I had a perspective, that the window that I was shedding on just with this local show, three hours a week, um, mostly music and political conversation, that there was a, an audience, and this is 1980, mm-hmm. 1980, 81. That was the beginning of okay, there is there's an, somebody out there wants to hear this perspective, but I still didn't think that I was going to have a place, much less in a in a system like NPR. So it was kind of on a fluke that my career guidance counselor said, you must apply to this internship to All Things Considered. Susan Stamberg is a Barnard graduate. You have a good chance of getting it. You must apply. And I was like, I will never get it. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. And I got it. It was adorable. There were like <laughs> you know, 25 people applying for one internship. <laughs> that was the old NPR, the old All Things Considered. And uh, and that's kind of how it all started. Once I got there and I was like, wow, this is really what I want to do. And then there's a whole other trajectory. But that was when I kind of said, nah, I
0: think I want to do this. And this was when you were still a student. So
1: I got my internship at NPR right as I graduated. Um, so it was – I couldn't actually – this is a real interesting issue. You know, a lot of students um, – from financially challenged backgrounds can't do internships because they have to work. So they can't work for free. Um, I was one of those students. I had to wait until I graduated when I was able to take a whole month off and not work, you know, put my waitressing uh, job on the side for a month. And I did that once I graduated in January of 1985 is when I had my internship at at All Things Considered. And that was, like I said, the beginning of a lot of things.
0: And so you really learned on the job about tracking a story, developing a story, producing a story.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, we were NPR junkies uh, back then because um NPR back then was they were the, you know, the smart, the nonconformist, uh, a little bit of the rebel kind of media. So I was an avid consumer of NPR. And actually one of our fellow students uh is was Katie Davis who at one point was the Anchor of Weekend All Things Considered and a great radio producer, and Katie was already filing for NPR when she was a student at Barnard. So we we were very familiar with um, you know where the NPR bureau was. We would go down there. I was exposed to you know I met Margot Adler, I met Mike Schuster, you know all these uh, Manoli Wetherill and Patty Nayman and Renee Montaigne when they were all um, youngins and newbies. I began to learn what it was to put together a radio piece. And you're right. The visual part of it, like actually seeing it. Oh, this is what it looks like when they go and they track a piece. Oh, this is what it looks like when they cut tape because that was when you could actually see them cutting tape. My favorite way to cut tape (laughs) with a razor blade. So, yeah, that was the beginning of how to put a story together. But what I always knew that I wanted to do with my reporting was that I wanted to make people feel something. It was not just about telling the story, the news story but actually wanting to make a connection with the listeners that that went deeper. So I would say that that was probably my understanding of if I have something to add here, it's not only because I see the world in a different way, but because I have this commitment to really wanting to have an emotional connection with, with my audience.
0: Well, you've certainly done that in many of the pieces that you've done. The, one of the most recent is uh, Lost in Detention, that frontline story. You examine the current administration's stance on immigration by looking at abuse in detention facilities. You're an immigrant and a U.S. citizen. How does your experience shape stories like these, the, the very kinds of stories you just described that, that you knew you wanted to do?
1: Well, thank you so much for asking the question in that way, which is how does your experience Um, As an immigrant, as someone who chose to become an American citizen, how does that help you tell the story or inform your perspective as opposed to another kind of question based similarly, which would be you have an agenda. The fact that you were not born in this country means that you are somehow different. The fact that you speak Spanish or can communicate with people who are, you know, maybe not born in this country makes you suspect um, and you have an agenda and this has been you know, the ongoing for 25 years, no matter how many awards I win that are kind of awards, um, most recently the John Chancellor Award, awards that kind of say you are an American journalist and thank you for your work, there will still be this notion that because of my personal experience, I have an agenda. What I will say is that because of my personal experience, I believe it makes me a better journalist. One, because I am able to see these things that are happening that maybe other journalists would miss because they don't have an immigrant background. Not necessarily. I happen to think that you don't have to come from these backgrounds to be a good journalist. A good journalist has their eyes open everywhere at every moment and is asking questions of everyone anywhere. But my experience does allow me to take a peek into this world and i think that that makes me a better journalist because then i'm informing everybody about stuff that's happening over here that really has an impact with all on, on all of us i also think that you know i've been reporting on immigration now for 25 years from the very first story that i did uh for npr was on a protest around immigration reform 1985 to now and that does afford me a kind of perspective because I've been doing it for all of these years. And the truth is is that something has happened in our country that we have to talk about. It's not very pretty. but um, And I understand it. I understand fear very well. But there has been a lot of um, making of images, a lot of misinformation, a lot of stoking the fire, the flames of fear. And I worry about that, and so I think my perspective, being having this experience, means I can be attuned to that. I was always perceived as the other, as somehow different, and yet I'm not. I'm I'm more like you than than anyone else, you know. So I think that what that allows me to do is to say, um, I'm using this perspective to help be a better journalist for everyone.
0: You're not the first journalist to be accused of having an agenda, clearly. Um, But there's also a paradox. As journalists, we try to be balanced and fair in our reporting. That doesn't mean we don't acknowledge that we do have, not maybe an agenda, but we have a life that we're bringing to the table. So can we do that if we cover what we're part of, or do we do it better because we're part of it? What is the key to... Representing the story fairly and in a balanced way and also shedding light on that part that we know we're bringing to the table. And I say we because I think women have – women journalists, it's been, oh, let's get the woman to cover that. African-American journalists have had this also. We all do. Um, So we can't always pick when we're sent to the story because of that or we want to go to the story because of that. So what's your advice for journalists to, to find that balance but also shine that light?
1: Well, look, a, a professional journalist, yes, we work alone, but we also work in teams. Most usually, if you're out reporting a story on your own, you're coming back and you're talking to an editor. You're having a conversation. You're, you're talking with other journalists. And as I was writing my speech for today, I was like, I'm so happy to be in the company of my people, my fellow <laughs> journalists. You know, That's what we do. Right, Because we understand that it's important to do a check. Is my perspective um, clouding anything here? That's why you have a team of people who are producing uh, journalism. The problem that I have is when the team that is producing journalism is very similar and that there's no diversity in that team. And as we all know, unfortunately, the reality is that increasingly our mainstream media that we all consume – is being decided overwhelmingly by white men of privilege. Um, I, I hate, and not to say that they're all bad people; <laughs> they're not. But there is a um, there is a, a noted lack of diversity at the highest echelons of at least national news productions, whether newspaper, or radio, television. Um, the web is something very different, but but even there, there there are issues. So. Uh when you have that, you need to have diversity to create better journalism. So how do you do it? We're professionals. That's what we do. And um, and at every turn, we have to be able to – the only thing we have as journalists is our credibility, is our our honesty, is our work. And so none of us want to – I mean, I, I have to say, I don't know if none of us, but, you know, many of us really want to try to not cross over into, so now I'm advocating. Mm-hmm. I can feel something, but I'm still not advocating because, honestly, I'm not a policymaker. I'm not a policymaker. But do I want to report on violence against women? Absolutely. That matters to me. It's an important story.
0: Well, and how do you draw a line between advocating and um, shining that light or publicizing or just bringing the issue forward sometimes feels like advocating. Right. Well, for example, you brought up Lost in Detention, and that was a piece
1: that was seen and had a m- huge impact. And I remember after it aired and got great ratings and great engagement with Latino viewers, you know, the the PBS ombudsman, um, <laughs> I thought, kind of threw me under the bus this whole you know, this kind of like, well and she's got a you know, she's got an agenda and and she was not nice to the Obama administration. I was like, Whoa, well, wait a second, isn't that a good thing? I'm supposed to be taking on any administration. And I remember being very upset because, you know, we take these things very seriously and very personally and I called um one of the senior editors at Frontline and I just said, you know, you gotta, gotta talk me down here. I'm really upset about this. He said, You know what, Maria? Think about Edward R. Murrow. Just think about Edward R. Murrow and the harvest of shame and what he did, and would anybody in their right mind have demanded from Edward R. Murrow, and now you have to do a half an hour all about the perspective of the owners of those farms, because, you know, sometimes our role as journalists is exactly to shine light. Not to say, here's the policy solution, because that's not what we study, but shine the light on the problem and not feel bad about telling the truth. And I do think that that is one of the places where we are in our country. We have to tell the truth and we have to start walking away from all of the the misinformation that gets picked up like wildfire and that becomes part of the mainstream that is misinformation.
0: Mm-hmm. You led me right to where I wanted to go here with my next uh, question. I'm a mind for you. reader as well. You <laughs> are. You are. You launched the Futuro Media Group to produce community based journalism that would, and I'm quoting from your website, give voice to the voiceless, tell stories that are overlooked, underreported by traditional media. Why are these stories overlooked or underreported? You've just said that sometimes the leaders are all sort of a hom- homogenous group. Um, but now you have an agenda through this media group that you formed to to shine that light. And so, why why isn't mainstream media or traditional media doing this beyond the diversity issue? Well, look,
1: I, I I'm fascinated by race and diversity and and power shifts. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I'm not afraid of it. I think that um, you know, I there are stories that speak to me. Native women being raped on reservations by non-Native men and not having any legal recourse. Of course, this was just finally addressed through the Violence Against Women Act. But that's a story that I, I don't want to generalize. But the truth is, is that when I have been in some major news networks, and I will have brought forth these stories, the response will be like, oh... Well, that's a that's a woman's story. Who's going to want to watch that? Or, you know, immigrants, not sympathetic. Uh, they all broke the law, you know. So it just happens that there is a kind of dismissal. So these stories inspire me. I get excited. Um, one of the stories that we are working on for our, no, our new television series um, that is being produced by the Futuro Media Group for PBS, and it's called America by the Numbers, it's a data driven reporting about the new American mainstream, the changing America, the organically diverse America. And we're telling these stories not like looking at them from afar, but rather from the inside. You know, here's a story that I think a lot of news networks would be like, ho hum. I'm fascinated by it. And the story is this by the numbers. The community, the population that have the, that have the, has the highest rate of inscription in the military in all forms of the military, are Pacific Islanders from America, mm-hmm. Samoa, mm-hmm. Marshall Islands, Hawaii, uh, etc. They also have, by the numbers, statistically, the highest rate of death and injury from serving in in the military. I'm already interested. Why is that happening? Well, clearly there's a complicated story. If you're born on some of the mar- on some of the Pacific Islands, you are not born with American citizenship. You can get it if you enroll in the military. There's not a lot. Of, there are not many jobs. The unemployment rate is so high. You have a a real push for recruitment in these communities. Is that right? Is that fair? Is it wrong? Why are they getting injured? Why are they dying at these numbers? But I think a major news network might be like one. It's too far away. Two who cares who are pacific islanders anyway and they're not the american mainstream and is this going to do anything for our ratings and that's why i love to work in public media because it's not about yeah it's about telling great stories and getting listeners and viewers but it's not only about the ratings it's about our mission so i i think that you know there's just kind of like who cares kind of mentality look i i'm going to say something very controversial Right now, but I'm I'm queuing people up to know that this is not how I feel, but it is something that I heard, because as a good journalist, I'm always listening all the time to other people's conversations, even when they don't know it. This one happened to have been in a local public radio, um, not NPR affiliated, but um, community radio station in Harlem, in New York City, where I live, and you know, people on, on the radio were saying we are really horrified by what, by what happened at Newtown. Horrified, what has happened to our country, but black children in communities in Chicago in new York in l a in Indianapolis, and wherever are dying. they are being shot daily, and so we have to understand that you know we have to understand that we are a country that has a very difficult past, and as our role as journalists is to always be shining light and to trying to push our country forward not in a divisive way, but in a in a way of unity. That That is, I would say, yeah, I think that is one of my agendas. I really don't want people going at each other's throats <laughs> all the time. Totally good with disagreement, with debate. But for something that ends up being for the good for our country, not just yelling and screaming at each other, that's not productive.
0: And is that part of the mainstream or the traditional media problem? Um, some of what you just described as stories – would be so long and detailed they would never be on network or some news shows would never devote that kind of time right. to the story. Mm-hmm. I mean that's another thing you're working working through public media you have a little bit more expansiveness mm-hmm. I suppose.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh yeah, well I mean remember I worked for CNN. For eight years, so – and we were lucky at CNN. I mean we would, we would be able to turn packages. I was very lucky, you know, three and a half minutes, four minutes. That was a luxury. Um It was, you know, a minute, minute and a half, 2, 2.20. Um You're right. It's hard to do something complex. On the other hand, I love doing it. It was great. It was a great experience and I love doing it. But the whole um advent of cable news media is really – an interesting phenomenon and very helpful on the one hand i mean i worked there for eight years on the other hand i'm highly critical of um of you know the need for always having something that you've got to be talking about you know hot i.e. Mm-hmm. divisive that's how they believe that they're going to get their ratings although the ratings not looking good for any of them necessarily
0: we're talking with maria enosa broadcast journalist whose work on radio and TV covers many of the societal issues of our time. We'll be right back.
2: Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: We're talking with Maria Inahosa of NPR and PBS, an award-winning journalist for more than 25 years who has pursued stories about topics from immigration to Alabama's poor to the plight of wounded veterans. Welcome back. It's great to be back. <laughs> Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of reporting these kinds of stories. Do you get to pitch your own ideas? Do you take assignments? Um, how does the process work for you? Well... One of the main
1: reasons why I decided to form the Futuro Media Group was because I wanted to have control and I am now an executive producer, so the buck stops with me. And I think that that's – we've been talking about the lack of diversity in in, in the media and what that – what the consequences are and so I decided that I had to put my – I don't know if I can say money because we don't (laughs) – we're always raising money but I wanted to put my money where my mouth is and say, okay, so I'm going to be in charge. So – Within my own company, again, because of the fact that we are professionals, it's not like I say, me, we're doing this story and it's going to be done this way and it's got to be this way and this is the script and you can't touch it. No. I have a team of people and we go through story ideas. What you know, Every week on Latino USA, that's what we're doing. And as we develop, develop the television series, the series, that's what we're doing as well. So we pitch internally. We have editorial meetings. We're always pitching ideas, always going on the back and forth. That's the funnest part of being a journalist. And then I continue to pitch to um, – I mean, I'm an anchor at Need to Know, but occasionally we pitch stories for them. I'm hoping to do another frontline at some point. That's probably the most difficult place to pitch ever in the world. <laughs>
0: Why um, is that?
1: You know, they are uh, – it's the mystique of frontline, I think, and they they wear it well. I, um, I'm a constant I'm, – I'm I'm, I push. So I was the first Latina to ever anchor a frontline. And I'm, I'm expecting and hoping to do more. But it is, it is a very competitive, challenging shop. Um, one where it can be a, a really difficult process to go through. <laughs> you don't ever want to lose your family over a front line.
0: No. No. <laughs>
1: but in the end, there's always excellence at the end. And so it's a painful process. But that is a painful creative process. So right now, because my company is – Taking the, the radio show Latino USA and expanding it to an hour in our 20th year anniversary because we're developing our television series, America by the Numbers, with Maria Hinojosa. Um, and the two other parts of my company are producing civic engagement events, going out into communities, doing screenings, conversations, panels, as well as doing a robust youth uh, media training center. So we don't have a whole lot of extra time to be pitching to a lot of extra places and frankly for me i am very conscious of who i want the futuro to be related to what if if our brand is a solid brand we need to be tied to somebody else who is really solid and um and i have very high standards so for now we are very happy to be in the public radio public television um web family but to be honest with you yeah i have dreams of doing other things you know bigger yes yeah, sort of this you know such as you know i never I, I i've been thinking about this because people would say you know 5 years ago when i was a senior correspondent at now on pbs and anchoring latino usa and people would say so what's your wildest dream i always call it dreamo vision and i asked this of young journalists what is your dreamo vision of yourself and they are you know they get all coy and kind of like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, no, no, no. You need to dream big right now. What if you could just say this is what I want to be, what would it be? You know. And I would say apart from being an uh, a correspondent for 60 minutes, which is still there for me, <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I want to I want to have my own production company and I want to start producing stuff, not only my own stuff where I'm the anchor, but a feature film, another documentary, another couple of documentaries, a reality show that you Ooh. know that is that is um uh an educated reality show. Um it involves dance, but not that lady who does the dancing <laughs> with the little I don't I've never seen that show. So I have a lot of ideas and and the fact is is that you know maybe I should be winding down, I don't know but i feel a tremendous amount of pressure to step up to the plate and deliver because it's this historical moment right where the latino population over the last decade grew by 43 44% we are continuing to grow so we have a role to play and i believe that i am somebody who brings people together and so as a as a prominent latina my role should be to engage and use the media across the board and yeah, maybe even make a little bit of money in the process. That would be like amazing.
0: <laughs> what kind of stories do you want to pursue? Do you want to continue in this uh this non-agenda, <laughs> this non-advocacy role? In other words, do you what kinds of stories still appeal to you? What's left out there? Oh my god.
1: Um there is so much to be done. I am so proud of my colleagues from um, This American Life who went in and spent some time um, at a high school called, I think it's the Harper High School in Chicago. I actually teach in Chicago once a week at DePaul University, and some of my students graduated from that high school. And, And as you know, they went in deep and they did some reporting there, and that's the kind of reporting that I started doing when I was a cub reporter at NPR. And I'm still doing that because, again, I think what really motivates me is, is finding those truly voiceless but who represent in so many ways the salt of the earth um so most recently on on Latino USA we um you know again i'm i'm fascinated with data and numbers because that's what my television show is all about we happened to be in new mexico at the local pbs npr station in albuquerque screening um our television show america by the numbers uh in the fall and i heard a number Somebody said, um, you know, New Mexico has the highest rate of heroin addiction in the country. And I cocked my head. I was like, hmm? Oh, yeah. And New Mexico also has the highest rate of uh, death by overdose in the country. And I was like, what? Because I've done a lot of reporting around heroin addiction, but mostly in in New York City. And I was immediately intrigued. And the numbers show it. So we went in to do um, a radio story about this. And um, the story that we found is that there are many local community-based organizations that are um, trying to turn the tide of this addiction cycle by returning to some Native healing, Native traditions, sweats, sweat Mm -hmm. lodges, um, acupuncture, um, sobadas, you know, these kinds of particular kind of massage, you know, going back to kind of Native principles And it's having something of an impact in this particular group of very, very intensely drug-infested community um, in Albuquerque. These people are are addicts, but they're they're sick. Doesn't mean they should be treated with a lack of respect. And in fact, that's what's happening throughout New Mexico. And that's why some people think that it's just going to be impossible to break the cycle because there's, there's just so many that people just don't care. And what we're saying is if you approach the story from care, there might be a difference. Actually, the piece is called La Cultura Cura, Culture Can Cure. Um, And we're not buying into it 100%. If you listen to Latino USA, you'll hear that we have a PhD um, saying, you know, it works sometimes, but it's not the panacea. So that kind of reporting um, is, is stuff that just I love. I love going in and uncovering. Something and um, going into communities that most people don't want to go into, and I think that that is a hallmark of public media in general, and so i'm I'm proud to be part of of holding up that that tradition.
0: You also have your one on one show, which is interviews with people asking them questions about what provokes them, what motivates them, what how they achieve what they achieve. you've made your own reputation as a crack interviewer. Who are some of the interviewers you admire, or you want to emulate, or or some that maybe you patterned yourself after, or were inspired by? Hmm.
1: Oriana Fallaci. <laughs> um, you know, I was a uh, I, I was a producer for Scott Simon. So um, before I became a correspondent, I was out with Scott, and so I saw what he did. Let's see other good good interviewers. I don't know if I I think that the key. To being a good interviewer is—it's ah, actually kind of staying in the moment. It's what you're doing. It's you know having done a lot of research, but your ability to stay in the moment and to connect with somebody. Um, and I think the other key is to be humble. I think um, somebody else who comes to mind actually is Ed Bradley, and I remember when I was—I um, don't know who I was talking to about Ed Bradley—and they said, "Yeah, you know the thing about Ed." is whenever you would see him, whenever you would see him in his interviews, he always had his hand on his chin. And somebody said, that's always a surefire way to see if somebody's really listening. Like, they're listening because they're mm-hmm. actually listening. Um, Ed's kind of like capacity to just be very authentic in his response, just kind of like, wait, 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 wait. What you just said just doesn't make any sense. So Ed Bradley was really important to me. So I think it's it's really about humility really important on the other hand the ability to be tough right i mean i've i've enjoyed interviewing sheriff joe Arpaio from arizona um enjoy let's see is that the word i want to use hmm. <laughs> i found it very interesting to interview him because he is such a bully mm-hmm. <laughs> and i'm just not used to interviewing people who are bullies and enjoy it and and so my question to him has always been sheriff joe Why are you always so angry? Why are you yelling at me
0: (laughs) right now? And his response?
1: I'm yelling because
0: everybody's always yelling at me.
1: Yes, Sheriff Joe, but I'm not yelling at you. Did you notice that? Well, yes, but everybody else is out there and they're always yelling. They're angry. Yes, but I'm trying to understand what motivates you, Sheriff Joe. And then the interesting thing about Sheriff Joe is that you realize, You know, that when you turn off the cameras and you take away the microphones, he's actually much more calm and kind of level-headed. And so, you know, you pull back that curtain, you know, the curtain of Oz, and it's like, what? So I think – so for us to see that happen with some of the people who we interview can be very upsetting. And also, yeah, some of my colleagues who actually – don't engage with the people that they're interviewing. Just, you know, that they believe that that's the way best way that they can do their job is to keep their engagement with the interviewee at a minimum. Whereas I'm just like, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to introduce my – I mean, I probably will hug you. I'm all about creating a safe space for the person who I'm about to interview.
0: Different? And some people approach it as more of a sterile?
1: Some people, some other um, journalists can approach it as more of a sterile kind of like, I have to keep my distance from you. And I'm like, Okay. All right.
0: Who's been a fun interview?
1: Well, the most recent fun interview actually was with um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And the reason why it was so fun was because I've interviewed her now on three occasions. I was lucky enough to do the very first interview that she ever gave on camera after being uh, named to the Supreme Court. So this was in the summer of 2009. And – um we did an interview for an hbo documentary called the latino list wow that was like extraordinary being in her chambers being with her as she was you know they were putting makeup on her in her i mean like amazing then i didn't interview her again until just in january of this year and uh it was great to see her again she you know showed up looking amazing because she takes very good care of herself and is a big exercise freak and eats very well cuz she's diabetic and um, yes, we did hug. Uh, yes. Oh, good to see you. You know, la, la, la. And then she looked at me and she said, Maria, I have the very first question that you t- you need to ask me for this interview. And I was like, Your Honor, thank you so much for having a first question for me. But, you know, I'm I'm pretty prepared and I have a great first question. Yes, Maria. Sonia Sotomayor saying to me, yes, Maria. But you really need to ask this question first. And I was like, of course, Your Honor. Of course, but I have a great question myself. She said, yes, Maria, but you have to ask this question. <laughs> okay, what's the question? And the question she wanted me to ask was what motivated her to write her memoir, My Beloved World. What a shock when I asked that question and she said it was a question that I had asked her in that 2009 interview that had motivated her to write this
0: book. Oh, my goodness. So,
1: of course, it's just like, wow, this is definitely one of those amazing moments. Pinch me, is this really possibly happening? I am interviewing the Supreme Court Justice. I know her. I'm touching her. And she's telling me that I motivated the desire to write her her memoir. Wow.
0: She was right about that question.
1: Yes, she was. Now, what, what the question was actually... What was it about your family, Justice Sotomayor, that gave you the tools to push forward? And that's when she realized, hmm, people think I have a great family life. I didn't. It was really hard. And that's what she wanted to tell, the story of it's not easy. looks pretty. Not easy. Everything is a challenge. And that book, I think, is a seminal and transformational book, not just for a Latina Supreme Court justice, it is, I believe, a transformational book for our country because it is, uh, again, pulling back the curtains on you know, the Supreme Court, what it does, who's there. Um, these are people who we never hear from. And so going so deep into the life of somebody um, who is so revealing was amazing. So that was a pretty amazing interview. It's um, been an
0: infuriating <clears throat> interview or somebody who really did sort of make you feel like you had an agenda – or someone who who didn't turn out exactly the way you thought it would?
1: I don't think I've ever had an infuriating interview. Um, I think probably the closest is is with Sheriff Joe Arpaio. You know, people ask me, what's your favorite interview? And it's like, my favorite interview is the one that I just did two days ago. Because, or the
0: one you may have next week. Or the
1: one that I may have next week. Um, I, I love talking to people. So, you know, I think uh, one interview that stands out is when I was hanging out with um, a young man who was um, a skinhead, who was a member of um, of an Aryan um, organization in Pennsylvania, and who had agreed to to a sit down interview at a at a steakhouse in Pennsylvania. Wow, you know he had um, he had Hitler tattooed on the side of his neck. He had SS tattooed under his um, left armpit, the way the SS actually did. He he was um, clearly a skinhead, and um, and we had lunch and talked. Talked for about four hours, and and then he realized he kind of liked me. <laughs> we we got on we got on well. We had good conversations, and I said so so Terry. And we ended up doing a story for for All Things Considered. I just said so Terry. Now you know now that you know me. Yeah, yeah I was born in Mexico. You know, you think I'm I'm the biggest threat to this country, and I'm unpure. But we're friends. So what would you what do you what do you say to someone like me about the future. And he said, I think you should leave the country for your own good because a race war is coming. So I like you. Leave. (laughs) That interview stands out. I'll never forget that. He was being honest. And I I was like, okay, thank you for that. That interview for some reason here in, in Indiana, it popped into my mind as one of those memorable moments.
0: Is there a book in you? You've written two books already. One was about uh, your coverage. It's called Cruise Gang Members Talk to Marina Hinojosa. Um And the other one is Raising Raul, which I want to talk about a little bit. Adventures Raising Myself and My Son. In the latter, you write about reconciling motherhood with a career, specifically Latino motherhood with a career. Now your children, you have a daughter also, are older, how did all that raising work out?
1: <laughs> You're so funny because actually yesterday I wrote an email to my agent. I was like, "Oh, listen, let's reissue Raising Raul and I'm going to add an addendum and I'm then we're also going to put a companion book about raising my daughter because of course my daughter's like, "Mom,
0: what about my book?" Well, and I'm sure that's a different story altogether.
1: Different story altogether. So Yes, there's another book in me. I just wish I had another two days where I could, like, live on another planet and be undisturbed, and then I could write that book really fast. So, yes, there's another book in me. I think that I I feel a real responsibility as well to talk about what the last three years have been like when I launched my own company, when I took that deep dive um, where, you know, I was always just a journalist and now I'm actually running something and now I've got a staff and now I've got, you know, a board of directors and blah, 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 blah. And how scary it's all been. Um, okay, truth be told, what what keeps me going is when I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, I've got a staff and I've got to raise all this money and we've got to, all the things. And I just think- You have think, to pay people. Yes, I have people who are dependent on me and I just think, you know who else is scared this morning? Hmm. Oprah Winfrey is scared this morning because she's having a hard time too. You know, she's got a, a a network that she's trying to get off the ground. So all of us in the media are facing challenges. So there's a part of me that feels like I should tell that story specifically for women, for women of color, for Latinas to, to, to um, counsel them to just jump in, that it's all going to be okay. I have a – I think that there's a part of me that wants to talk about the last – decade, you know, what happened since 9-11 and how our country has been changed and how this is, again, a transformational moment in our country and the responsibility that we all have to safeguard our democracy, to make sure that due process is guaranteed to everyone, that we do not um, just give up and live in a police state because that's what ended up happening after, you know, 9-11. Believe me, I I I want security. Um uh, I covered the September 11th bombings. I suffered from post traumatic shock as a result. I lost, you know, people who I reported on lost their families. So I am very close to this issue. I am I want to be safe. I worry that in the name of safety, we are giving up a lot. Um and this is a concern that I have as an American citizen as somebody who chose to become an American citizen. And so these these basic issues of the Constitution and due process and freedom um, really matter to me. So there's a part of me that says, well, you need to talk about that too in a book. So I don't know. Yes, yes, there's a book.
0: I just need that planet. <laughs> yes, that two days. <laughs> so you've already been inducted into the Paley Center's She Made It Hall of Fame, which kind of sounds like maybe – you do have one more book in you, um, and that Hall of Fame is for women trailblazers in media. So you already talked a little bit about some of your dream projects. Uh, what would be the capstone to your work? Not that we think you're done yet, but what would really be something that that you would want to to finish or or just um, certify a great career?
1: I'm I'm kind of there. I have to say. I mean, at this point. I feel very satisfied. You know, we have projects in development. So we are developing um, a series for PBS. So that's kind of huge. It's my own series and we're developing it. Um, it is the first time that a national news program is anchored and executive produced by a Latina woman. Um, that's pretty amazing. So that's, that's a big ch- you know, notch that I have um, achieved. We are developing a, multi- a major multimedia project. Call the Violence Against Women and Girls Reporting Project because I care deeply about this um, based on a number. Uh, a recent poll found that 92% of American women say that violence is the issue that is of most concern for them. That, I think, is fascinating. So we want to dive deep there. That's a big project. That's kind of close to my heart. We're just starting on on raising the money for that project, so I want to complete that. Again, besides getting that job offer at sixty minutes which I still think should happen, I think I would like to produce a feature film. And I, I actually like feature, not necessarily documentary.
0: Um so yeah, that might be that might be there. That's tapping into that early uh drama dancing. Well, you know what?
1: The King's speech mm-hmm. that became, you know, amazing movie. That movie was made by a fellow journalist. I don't know his name. He's British. Um, and I met him actually uh, like a couple of, a week after he had won his Oscar, I ended up having dinner with him through another situation. And and he's a journalist. He He's just like us. And he just said, you know, I was looking for a good story and I bought the rights and I just, and I'm like, okay, we're all about story. And, um, and so sometimes, um, why not? Why not, you know, move into that into that realm? You know, one in four Latinos buys movie tickets in the United States of America. One in four. So while I might be thinking about a major dramatic film that, you know, is just like world changing, there's also a part of me that's like, well, what, what movie would my kids want to go see? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's that. And I think that the other thing parallel to that would be to make another transformational um, film like Lost in Detention mm-hmm. um, that is – deep that uncovers. And I have some of those, but I'm not going to reveal what they are because I don't want to give them
0: away. Well, that's right. Protect <laughs> protect your ideas. That's a fitting note to end on. We've been speaking with broadcast journalist Maria Inahosa of NPR's Latino USA and PBS's Need to Know about her 25-year career and what she plans for her future. Maria, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me back in Bloomington. This is Gina Asher for Profiles. Thanks for listening.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.